0: So I'm going to attempt to respond to some questions this evening. There are quite a few, and so I'm not going to deal with everything that came in. I'm also trying to get a sense of what would be, you know, useful, supportive for practice, liberation, for and what would be of general interest. Let's get through some of the conceptual stuff first of all is a fairly straightforward one about the four kinds of noble beings that are mentioned in this chant four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings who are they? this is one of those classifications that was made so this particular chant is just a recollection in terms of these classifications that the Buddha made occasionally because it's nice, something nice and clear so it's all good. We can get that one down and get a little grid of so represent different stages of liberation. And so the first stage is called stream entry, and the second stage is called um, once return, third stage is called non-return, fourth stage is called arahant, and they represent way different levels of ignorance can be dissipated. And the first deals much more with a kind of conceptual level, you know, stream entra. So the second one deals more with the hedonic feeling level and then second and third. And the fourth one deals with the level of just experiencing oneself as being something. And so the arahant has got no idea of being anything, <laughs> really, as something they could lay claim to. So why there are four pairs is because this particular chance is those who are, you know, uh, approaching on the path the stream enter and those who have realized it. And the pose are on the path to um, month's return and those who have realized it. And so this became kind of a, a classification system which creates, like many, many things, creates certain problems yeah, because people want to know where they are. Am I on the path to it? Am I not? Is she a stream enterer? Ajahn so and so is a stream intro isn't he? No, he's a he's a he's a non-returner. No, he's not. I oh, know he did. He's going to return. How many times is he going to? he's a once returner? <laughs> and you get all this kind of silly stuff going on. Imagine Char wouldn't have any of it. Somebody says. No stream, Richard said. It's better than being a dog, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of blew that one out of the water. <laughs> Another technical one. Suttas talk about a body witness. What is a body witness? Well, this refers to um, Samadhi states um, or Jhana states or liberation through Samadhi and Jhana. So these are kind of directly felt in one's body. Of course, body being, you know, not necessarily physical body, but the energetic body is no longer uh, captured by passion. Oh, it doesn't kind of retract with fear. not Captured by passion it doesn't flare up, it isn't stimulated, it's just quite serene and peaceful so that you witness in your own body there's no greed, there's no hatred, there's no doubt, there's no anxiety here. The embodiment is completely serene and and, uh, and released from these um, experiences, and you witness it in your body. In this other set of classifications, it's the arahant is liberated in body and also in wisdom. So they both experience... These sublime or free states and then also comprehend it and understand it. So the view is straight. Uh, so it's recognized you have to for the arahant you have to be liberated both in discernment and also in disembodied um, condition. And you can be the case that you're liberated in the embodied condition, but you're in body condition, but your wisdom isn't complete, completely fulfilled yet. It's a little bit, again, perhaps rather theoretical, but that's what it's about. So consciousness, awareness, and chitta are they the same? Um, when consciousness is not running through the sense fields, when it is aware of its basic awareness, is this the chitta? If chitta is "I am" without self, then five aggregates are all chitta, minus body. How is chitta different from consciousness? Both allow experience to be known. Well, we're dealing here with words, and so. Sometimes chitta is translated as consciousness, and some people refer to chitta using the English word consciousness. I think in Abhidharma also uses the word consciousness to describe chitta. But, um, in the suttas you have something called vijnana, and you have something called chitta, and they are, they're close, but, uh, um, uh, and they both have the property of being aware. That if one receptive, one knows, one you know you're alive. But consciousness seems to refer to where that awareness is placed. Like its visual awareness is placed in the visual field, or the auditory field, or the tactile field, or the field of mind. Mano so You have this thing called manovijnana. And Manovijnana experiences thoughts and impressions that come and go. So, in this sense, Vijnana seems to refer to primarily to, you could say, the location of awareness at any given moment. Jitta refers more to the stimulation of it, whether it, Jitta could be happy, excited, contracted, dull, confused, ignorant. So, in some ways, it's more significant. Because this will tells you where you're at, if you like. That's why, in a very colloquial sense, you can say it's the sense of self. You know, the sense of it, oh, the me bit. That's chitta. You know, that which is not obviously not the body, but something that is seemingly subjective. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, we might look at a at a flower. And that would be visual consciousness. But then we might be pleased by that, and, and interested in that. Would be chitta, um, and we might, based upon that, want to go and pick it or pluck it. That would be a volitional impression arising in chitta. Chitta deals with with directions and purpose and and uh, desire and or and compassion, of course. So it's the ethical. Volitional sense of of awareness, sensitive. Um, but then awareness is a very kind of bland term, but it covers everything. Uh, sometimes an analogy I use of chitta is like the surface of a lake, that is both reflective and also trembling. And if it's very still, the reflection is very clear and steady. But if you throw rocks or rivulets run into it it gets rather disturbed but it's still reflective if you throw tar or oil into it it's still reflective so it remains reflective but it can be quite muddied uh, reflections or distorted reflections or reflections that are broken up by the ripples Um, so it's both these and the process of samadhi really helps to clear the rippling and, and and the agitation, so the reflection is much steadier than it's a support for wisdom. Now when we come to mind consciousness and citta then you're getting two things that are pretty pretty close, and um, sometimes chitta is referred to as the, the element of mind consciousness, or the, the substance of it. Manovinyana Dhatu as synonymous, uh, so if you like. Mano-vijnana deals with the ability to experience things uh, conceptually, perceptually, emotionally. So it's something, it's not a sight, not a sound, it's a mental impression. And chitta is the degree of the, the impressibility of mind, how it feels, and, and whether it responds in a skillful or unskillful way. That would be the citta. So essentially, it's uh, you know consciousness. That's just the fact of being born in this human condition. Other creatures have different kinds of consciousness, and that will, you know, have its own you know like visual consciousness. If you is dependent on whether your eyes work or not, that's nothing to do with liberation. But chitta is, yeah, because these senses to get the confusion and the distortion and the agitation, clear that, and then the chitta is then called released. Uh, mm. uh, and so, so chitta is is also held to be that which persists, or is through lifetimes. Yeah. So when the death, of, ending of the body, the consciousness associated with the body, you know, breaks up, and, and this chitta, this heart impression, which has got its volitional urges, then seeks fresh, becoming a fresh birth. So it's pretty crucial to the process of what the Buddha was outlining. Mm-hmm. So if we look at something like you know dependent origination you have a Vijaya Pachaya, Sankara Sankara Pachya Vijnana Vijnana rupa namarupa, rupa Vachaya so forth. You know, so don't go through the whole thing. But you see consciousness is there is very much configured as dependent upon Sankara, and Sankara dependent around ignorance. Now it's not exactly a causal process. Uh, like this causes that but they condition. So the degree of ignorance will certainly condition the volitional impulses. You know, If we're really ignorant, there's a lot of ignorance, in your, your impulses, your volitional impulses, and emotional triggering will be pretty confused and erratic, mm. distorted. Less of that, then your impulses will perhaps be clearer, more sustained. Mm. Uh, primary ignorance... Is that these impulses are held to be myself, belonging to me. So, what is it that's ignorant? Chitta. <laughs> chitta is occluded by ignorance, therefore, its, its volitional impressions have a degree of taint, of self view, of attachment, of greed, of passion in it. This then propels consciousness towards the aims that chitta is seeking. We look for things but they dependent upon our desires and fears. We look at things through tinted spectacles. Mm. And so consciousness is then tinted by sankhara. Yeah. Even what we seek out is dependent upon these volitional impulses. Yeah. And so then you really see that where consciousness gets placed is dependent upon Chitta's inclinations. These inclinations are not determined necessarily by an act of the will, but by degree of occlusion and non-clarity. So Chitta imagines something out there is going to make it feel good. So it seeks sight, sounds, touches, so forth. Mm maybe this this might be helpful in terms of the consciousness not running through the sense fields well there doesn't seem to be an instance of consciousness not running through some sense field or another including when we understand the mind to be a sense field and uh, this can even go to quite extraordinary because the mind field is is a mind field <laughs> You they know, so can go heaven, hell cosmo- different places in the cosmology uh, yeah. but the uh, teaching says well you move towards where the mind ends <laughs> where there is no mind and this was referring to mano vijnana where there is no mind then this is peaceful which is not Suicidal impulse, but the the ending of that placing of awareness within the conceptual framework. Um, now, the aggregates, rupa vedana sanna Use the Pali because the English isn't that good, and translators sometimes translate these words differently. Rupa, form. Mm. Uh, Vedana, feeling degree of pleasure or pain whether this is meditation jhana, pain, pleasure pleasure of a, you know, cup of coffee or pleasure of music uh, the degree of pleasurability mm. sensory or sublime Sanya meaning impression, perception how things are in, categorized we see something and so say, that's blue, that's blue, so we use a, a word, we'll actually really, you know, there are many kinds of blue, aren't there, mm-hmm. and blue doesn't exist separate from a flower or clothing or liquid, so blue doesn't actually exist. <laughs> And yet we use it because it's a perception we could all recognise, even though it can't stand apart from an object. And it's a very blurred term, but we use it. So that's a perception. And of course, perceptions can be extremely well loaded. You know, this is a man. This is a woman. Well, what does that mean? You know, (laughs) and. How, how far does that go in terms of understanding another person? You know, because anxiety is not male or female, happiness is not, purity is not male or, you know, really important things are not male or female. Well, in my opinion, um, <laughs> that's my perception. <laughs> but I guess, you know, if you go into a clothing shop, it's pretty important to decide which one you want to be in terms of clothing or things like this. So perceptions, um, where do they come from? Because chitta needs to get some sort of map so it operates in terms of generating these uh, ways of classifying its experience. So, for example, perception, when you're first born, you don't really have much at all. You know sight sound like you know, wow imagine coming out of complete darkness and the visual world appears Bam what on earth is this you know <laughs> So and you can see very little 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 ones they're kind of looking at their fingers trying to figure out what's this thing and getting oh this this vision that thing's oh right yeah that's part of me you know actually don't really so but then when you got it, then your perception is established that thing is called a hand and it's part of this thing called body which is part of me because it hurts if i stick it in a fire that's me <laughs> that's important <laughs> right so then you got the perception gets established and perception is like a library and you build them up so chitta builds up these these remembered impressions to refer to in order to navigate yeah and feeling is that which gives it a push. So chitta jitta gets pushed by feeling. So and then sankara is is the is the response that chitta makes. Whereas as feeling or perception land, then chitta responds. You know, perception of something I find frightening. You know, like a large dog. You know. Or when it's a large dog, boom then the triggering of anxiety happens. But of course, for another person, large dog might be very lovable, cuddly thing. So that sankara doesn't arise, but dependent upon the sunnyana sankara flare up, move around. All this happens through the locations of consciousness which are providing the raw material for these um these experiences to happen. This is the way that to establish itself, you yeah, know, it establishes form, which we imagine exists as an as a actual objective reality. There is such a thing as a form, but <laughs> it's very dependent, you yeah. know. So if you take something like, you know, a bat, for example, uh, what they can detect with their sound, uh, what certain creatures can read infrared and ultraviolet, so they see the world differently. Dog mostly builds its world around olfactory impressions, so the smell. So what this place smells like would be the big thing for the dog, whereas for us it's mostly visual. So, what is anything? <laughs> so, you know, the actual form of something depends upon the consciousness that's, that's receiving it. And it, it gives the sense of there being something substantial, substantial and lasting. But it isn't substantial or lasting, it's shifting and changing. Rupa. So with this aggregates, there's some, certainly Chitta's got some mapping but it finds out all those map references are very conditioned, illusory, impermanent, changeable, unreliable. Yeah. Uh, and so with this, there's a turning away and it turns back to itself, you could say. And that's called uh, liberation. Turning away from the aggregates. Okay, somewhat mind boggling idea, but that's what it says. (laughs) One turns, one inclines one's chitta away from the aggregates thus. This is useless, this is a nuisance, this is a pestilence, this is a waste of time, these kind of words. The aggregates, just fed up with that. Instead, this is peaceful, this is sublime stilling of Sankaras, the relinquishment of the aggregates, the acquisitions, you know, detachment, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. Yeah, you know? so there you go, you know, you can have these little things up there on your on your memory board somewhere, mm. Then you start checking it out, what is a form? What is a form anyway? Yeah the form appears to exist independently but these aggregates work together that cushion looks like a separate form but actually with no floor there right? with no color with no, you know, it's defined because I, I see it as a separate thing mm-hmm. if I was a dog I might see that cushion rather differently or a snake or a worm, then that would be a rather a different experience altogether. So these are all very subjective and that's the nature of jitteris is, is subjectivity. Subjective. And it's clearing the fixations where it imagines its subjective impressions actually are an objective reality. That's what keeps it stuck. Okay, question: Could you explain context and purpose in relation to sampajano? Clear comprehension. Well, I think what's really useful to to bear in mind, particularly with these four uh, references, purpose. Context, uh, suitability, and non-delusion, as they keep they keep things very fluid and dynamic, yeah. Uh, you know, because you constantly they, they adjust your your sati, your mindfulness, and this is important because we can get mindfulness like as a technique, and then kind of go automatic on it. So, example of contextual uh, sampejano, which is an anecdote, somebody leaving a retreat at IMS, probably driving home, feeling quite comfortable, driving along, very peaceful, driving along, happy, comfortable, driving along the road, looks in his mirror, police cops, oh God, what's happening? You know, cop pulls over Pulls in front, stop, stop, stop. He pulls up. Cops, okay. Cop comes to the window, looks in the window. License. Why are you driving at 12 miles an hour in the middle of the road? (laughs) (laughs) Because I didn't have some pajano officer. That's all right then. (laughs) I was being very mindful, but I didn't get the idea of where I was, you know. And so this can happen when you get a kind of like obsessive mindfulness. You're doing things super slowly, and you're totally out of sync with what the reality of what's needed. Or you're focusing on an object uh, without really understanding, you know, this is, uh, you know, contextually inappropriate. Mm-hmm. That's an example of context, gochara. So you need to have that flexion to say, okay, well, when I'm in this situation, I'm mindful of sharing a room with 20 other people, therefore, you know, I will kind of have that in mind rather than be obsessive. You know, I was in a retreat one time and it was this meditation it was quite a small meditation hall, Uh it was. Uh, you know, people were going there and sitting early in the morning and then the door opened. This guy came in and he's looking around the floor. And I'm watching him and he's looking at the floor. And there's this person sitting. And he's looking at where the person's sitting and he starts, gets a little lantern out and starts scrutinizing the floor. Like a few inches away from where this person's trying to sit and meditate and he gets a little brush out and he starts brushing the floor I guess he's making sure there's no insects on it and then flashing light moving around because <laughs> <laughs> he's being mindful <laughs> he's completely oblivious to the fact there's other people in the room it <laughs> might be disturbing <laughs> you yeah. so that's contextual contextualizing purpose means you've got a sense of why you're mindful you know what you're mindful of um, so it's mindful uh in order to um, liberate uh, to so you, so again it's it's countering what we might say obsessive mindfulness where you're just fixated upon something that's not really suitable like you're fixating on on calming the mind when you should actually be energizing it so you, you know you're kind of not you've, you've forgotten the point because you've decided that meditation means calm down and get quiet okay. so you're trying to do that and you're falling asleep because you have enough energy well it's better to get up and do some walking because that will clear the mind of that particular hindrance Mm -hmm. so you use the aim is freeing yourself from unskillful conditions rather than having a particular system you do no matter what take some of the automatic out of sati, because this is one of the things the stream-enterer, you know, they've overcome this fetter called attachment to systems and customs, sila patta paramasa. So we should remember this doesn't necessarily mean, uh, you know, we're worshipping Vishnu, but it does mean we get into, uh, kind of like, obsessed with systems of practice even, techniques of practice, where ideally you have a whole bunch of techniques and possibilities and you, you select which is suitable at a particular time or even the kind of effort you apply. Uh, like when when the mind is dull, it's not the time to quieten, it's the time to investigate and stimulate. When the mind is agitated, now is now not the time to be stirring it up, now it's the time to find a simple object to steady it. Someone asked about mindfulness preceding the object. I think this is a reference to, I mentioned, the Buddha saying, when your virtue is there and your views are straight, you should establish mindfulness. Um, So does this precede the knowing of a specific phenomenon? Well, I guess it's rather like, mindfulness is sometimes associated with remembering so one of the um, definitions of mindfulness is one is mindful one remembers the meanings of things said long ago so you've got the ability to that and sustain bear that in mind and stay with it so you can well what's the purpose of that and you, that and then you stay with it so if you if you just use memory in an ordinary way you might think, oh, when, what's it what's that supposed to be? And there's this moment where there's nothing happening, then bing, an idea pops up. So then you've got it. But prior to that, your mindfulness was there, you know, searching for an object and the object appeared. Um so that would be an example, um, which might be just a fraction of a second even. Um, you know. So the, the setting up of mindfulness is done through appropriate attention. And so, what is it appropriate to really do this thing with? That's no, that's pointless. And Netflix, no. Mindful of no, no, no. Just body, okay. boom. and then you establish attention, and you do the important act of establishing it. Placing it there, sustaining it, and then receiving what you're attending to. Then mindfulness has been established. But first of all, you have that moment of your view is straight, your virtue is right, therefore you aim in the right direction, and then you establish it. So, why does the mind often feel it needs to be comfortable in order to settle? I find this subtle perpetual searching for comfort in all areas of my life. Do we need to look for ways to relinquish comfort, be they a cup of tea or a softer cushion? Do we actively push ourselves or just watch the mind and incline towards letting go? Dukkha seems the norm. (laughs) Well, yeah, you need to make the mind comfortable, but... It's not made comfortable by sensory data. Um, so we say, okay, make your mind comfortable means you first we have a sense of my heart is resolved, and then so that that gives you a sense of steadiness, yeah. and then establishing something, your attention on something that you can relatively easily sustain it upon so it's within your reach you're not straining to find something subtle too subtle for you Uh, that's moving too fast you can't really give it attention or it's so inflammatory that your mind can't stay steady with it it's something that's kind of relatively available and um, is also natural it's not something you've cooked up and so we say, okay, well, you can be mindful of a body. It's pleasant and unpleasant, but if you sustain the overall impression of it, it gives you something that your mind will, oh, okay, I can settle on that. Yeah. And the settling within your reach. It's comfortable in that respect. And having done so, you start off with something you can access that gives you a definite, stable, focus, so stability is the first thing yeah? and comfort you work it out by experiencing the quality of stability itself as being more comfortable than constantly fidgeting around constantly searching for this or that and the other, it's uncomfortable find something that can be stable, so that's your first base could be a mantra, you know something stable and you get more comfortable in it if you go into your body use your body you get more comfortable in it by beginning to learn how to sit or walk or stand in a way that creates least strain and stress so yeah you know there's some surface discomfort but basically the thing overall feels it's settled it's um you know the balance of the body if it's held correctly, is least pressure, least agitation, least imbalance, most relaxed muscles, that's pretty good. And if I linger upon those impressions that are actually agreeable or non-conflicting, the interesting thing is that what we linger on with mindfulness, with mind, becomes the dominant impression. And if so this means after a while we don't really notice you know, the areas of discomfort they no longer seem so uh, so striking you know, just as, you know, you meet an old friend and maybe their clothes aren't looking so good, but because your main impression is, here's my friend the fact that, you know, her hair's a mess and her clothes all over the place doesn't really matter to me, because basically that's somebody I really like, you know so yes, you could find fault with this that and the other, but the main thing is, is uh, agreeable because it's uh, you know you work you work on, on an overall impression. Yeah, you know? uh, that's important because until the mind accepts that, it's comfortable in the way that the mind will actually, okay, I'll rest in that. Then you can do some do some practice. If you can't rest in it, you can't do any practice. It doesn't have to be, you know, fantastic. It just has to be something steady, stable, and uh, least stress as possible. Mm-hmm. And then by giving careful attention to it, to aspects of your body, like breathing in and breathing out. You know, it's possible for that degree of comfort to increase but you take that step at a time attitude also helps if the mind is compliant, malleable sensitive, receptive it's going to be find that degree of comfort much more easy to attain than if it's demanding, impatient fretful and lacked resolve so this is the way we we establish comfortable in this meditation sense of it. So here we go, we're going into more details. Sometimes I get the feeling the breath doesn't want me following it, <laughs> it tightens against that awareness. Right. Well, yeah, maybe, maybe yes, indeed. See, breathing—why it's um, conducive is because breathing—it's a regulator of the emotional system, of the nervous system. This means it's also um, sensitive to emotional impressions. So, if we get anxious, the breathing changes. We panic the breathing changes if we get aggressive the breathing changes if we get sleepy the breathing changes so it's definitely you know it sits between we might say body and psychology it's neurology and emotional impressions are also part of the area that the breathing moves through you know, so you can use breathing to calm your emotions though It's just air. Air's got nothing to do with emotions. But it's not just air. It's a a neurological signal. Now that works both ways. Because if your emotional attitude or your psychological attitude is, I don't know, doesn't seem, this breath doesn't seem to like you very much, perhaps you're approaching it in the wrong way. (laughs) Who is that? Get away. It's that person who's always trying to concentrate on me, get off <laughs> you know trying to put me in a box and make me make me make me into something. Well, let me let me be you know you know you could be compressing it, okay, get the breathing it out, give me some samadhi, come on, and it's not going to like that very much because you're putting a certain emotional psychological pressure on it, yeah. So you've got to approach it pretty nice, you know, like a bunch of flowers and stuff like that, you know, hello. And so first of all you show up in a body. And that's that's already quite a quite an undertaking because bodies don't like you very much either <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> you've got to be pretty kind of quiet and you know, okay, just how you are is fine. You know, how you are is fine, I just like to get to know you kind of thing, you know. And then it will open up. But if you start expecting it to start jumping through hoops for you and then it doesn't like it at all. In which case it's best to forget breathing in and out. You know, Just get how do you get stable? How do you get comfortable? How do you get receptive rather than with a program running? How do you you know, how do you get out of the meditation program and just 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 touch the ground you know, with some awareness and you know, take it, see what opens up. Some teachers of concentration emphasize experiencing the breath as a concept rather than focusing on physical sensations. What's your experience and orientation? Did the Buddha emphasize one approach over others breath is subtle energy force well I don't know other teachers I, I wouldn't like to comment because I don't know if this is a, exactly they might whether you've really got it absolutely right I don't know but breath is a concept uh, I can't relate to it personally mm. Um, there's all kinds of things that people do and can do that can give rise to results. Um, Physical sensations are relatively easy, but um, you know, the Buddha referred to breathing and, and breathing through the entire body and calming the kaya-sankara kaya sankara bodily formation, which is, is basically an energy. Um, so sensations, say, of breathing could be helpful just to give yourself a training in being able to sustain attention. But um, I don't think it really helps or is, is a comprehensive presentation of what the Buddha was talking about because when you are thoroughly sensitive to the entire body breathing in breathing out what sensations would you be picking up by doing that you know the sensations in your knees your hips, your back your shoulders, your elbows or No, you know, but if you contemplate the energy of it, then the energy of breathing just, like, like blowing up a balloon, it just expands through all of it by itself. You know, because energy radiates through the body, so you don't have to go this, that, this, that, this, that. You just let the breathing expand, and you sense the entire body. Or the body that's affected by breathing, and the Buddha called it a body within the bodies. So there's a you know that sense of a regular suffusion of breathing that becomes pretty cohesive and coherent. Mm. So then you feel then refreshed in body. And the jhanas are experienced as suffusing the entire body with rapture and happiness so that there's not one pore of one's entire body that's not suffused with rapture and happiness. So something is squeezing energy through that. Uh, So that's breathing. Not breath, breathing. So that's significant too because we're talking about a process. Not, not a phenomenon as an entity, it's just the process, what happens when you breathe in and out. Yeah. Something's moving, shifting. Mm. So that's my orientation. And I, I feel fairly um, comfortable with looking into that as I review the Buddhist teachings. Because with that you can move as it does, it goes from the um, more body body reference and then it moves into the sense of uplift and it moves into the emotional sense, the jitta, jitta sankara, emotional, impulsive sense. That's not a sensation. <laughs> you know? Like a a feeling of happiness is not a sensation. And uh, a chitta state such as anxiety or, or stimulation is not a sensation, it's, it's a heart energy. So these energies seem to flow together. And that's, as I was saying, the breath, breathing is not just a physical process, it's a neurological and emotional process that represents our state of heart. Then you can, you know doing this process you can clear the heart and that's not sensations and it's not a concept so someone's having a lot of fear arising I send it metta karuna but samadhi seems to make it stronger I also have a knot in my heart and back is it related to that? Well, it's worth investigating. Um, I would question the samadhi, if you're in a state of fear, it's getting stronger, it's the, probably the wrong kind of samadhi. Um, there is such a thing as wrong mindfulness and wrong samadhi. Um, so any anything that you're absorbed into could be called a samadhi, but the Buddha said there are different kinds and I don't recommend ones that are about, uh, caught up with unskillful states. So um, an investigation is needed as to what what fear anxiety feels like and how that is how that hindrance or the effects of that are sensed and understood and released. Now, the strategy of sending metta karuna to it sounds like a good idea, but I'm slightly sceptical because it sounds like you're trying to get rid of it. And, um, you know, who's doing all this meta and why? They're doing it because they want to get rid of the fear, surely. Well, that's called Aversion. understandable but the the more helpful way I would suggest is oh this is fear anxiety, how does that feel? Uh Uh-huh let's get to know you Mm. where does it move? What does it do? How is it? Uh Uh-huh, that's a very open attitude to it and then what, what does it need? Needs protection? Needs reassurance? Needs comfort? Where is that? Where can I find that? So it's a more sympathetic response than a, than a response to try to get rid of it. And the, the, your responsiveness deepens in its sensitivity and its inquiry. And this will touch into the issue or the, the that is generating this fear and give you a way to to allow it to unfold and be released. The knot in the heart or back is again yeah something's <laughs> something's compressed there. And so again this sense of Softening, widening, inquiring, sympathy towards that rather than trying to shove it out, um, or even you know, is, is what I'd recommend. You know, if things are knotted, you need to be quite open and gentle around that. Hindrance of doubt, particularly self doubt. Well, if we translate doubt as as absence of confidence, it's not information that's going to be useful. You can't solve this kind of doubt. You can't solve it with any thought. Because it's not about information, it's about security. And security is not provided with information. Security is established through... Presence through groundedness, through not relying upon a thought, but having direct experience of something stable and settled. So, yeah, a core, core presence, basic presence, and in energetic terms, this means that there is actually a kind of a, a core present quality of energy that keeps us stable and generally what's happening is that's getting stirred up and bits of it fly off and get stimulated and so forth and if, if this adequate skill that can be gathered back and collected and steadied and so forth now the quality the things that cause the energy to fly out are thoughts emotions uh, the outward-going mind, the outward-going citta. And the citta goes out through sight, sound, thought. Touch goes out. Its energies run out. When its energies run out, we lose the mooring. We feel... And then, you know, then when the thing that the citta is moored to disappears, then we're in this rocky state. Now, of all, all... things that the jitta goes out to sight, sound, touch and so forth Um, the most predominant one it goes out to is the mind we seek certainty in thoughts and ideas plans judgments, analysis I am this, I am that dogmas, doctrine and so forth Um, and none of these are actually um, they're all dependencies props and people can get very dogmatic about an idea because it gives them a prop in meditation as you begin to release that there can be a disorientation and the disorientation is almost necessary so you can't rely upon that thought, that idea, that notion that plan, that concept of yourself, you can't rely upon it so you release the energy from those, from those areas and then what you can rely upon is here. Right here. Direct touch, direct. Yeah. Not thinking. But direct contact with stable impression. And the most obvious place for this will be in your body. And keep it very simple. The less concept, the less doubt. Less room for doubt. Yeah. You know, if you want to walk along a tightrope, you don't think about it. When you think about it, you fall off. <laughs> You've really got to be with what's happening in your feet, in your balance. Thinking about anything is not going to do you any good at all. Right. So, similarly, when you meditate, you really got to be on the ball, not as it's happening, and find something you can walk with. Steady impression that you can return to, directly receive the impression of it, this is why these med- this is these meditation body is like that, you know. Ideas about yourself, useless, really, in this, in this sense. Something about compassion and emptiness, emptiness of self and compassion. Well, I think you know, compassion is helpful. Um, a very mundane example is, uh, you know, if we find ourselves feeling averse or struggling or um, with people, it's generally not people, it's their behavior. You know, and, so, and then we interpret the behavior as that's who she is. No, that's behavior that's happening for various reasons. Everything rises because of a reason. Now, if you're not compassionate and you think, well, because she's a nasty person. No, 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 well, just let's stop that one. (laughs) It could be that because causes and conditions have caused that particular piece of behavior to arise and that person has to receive those experiences in their heart and the results of their action. Oh dear. Then your response to them is much more compassionate because you don't identify them with their behavior it's not you're not saying the behavior is fine but that's behavior and that has a cause and a condition and the person experiences those causes and conditions those causes and conditions are established in their citta, they will give rise to results then you get a feeling oh dear, this person's you know, in trouble. Um, And you try to refer to the straightness or the sanity or the goodness of the person, the relationship, and see the the chitta behind the person's behavior with a mind of compassion because they have to receive results of their actions. You don't have to receive results of their actions, they do. So, it's helping to to free up the notion of identification, really gives one a much richer path to inquiry and goodwill, and similarly for yourself. Let's pause for today.